Well, good morning, King's Chapel, and welcome to our online worship service. It's great to be with you. Last week, we had a great celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, who, when he walked amongst us, said this, I have come that you should have life and that you would have it to the full. Well, here at King's Chapel, we believe that the best way to experience and to grow in that fullness of life is by knowing God, by growing together as the family of God, and by reaching the world around us. So before we get started this morning, let me just remind you of a couple ways that hopefully we can continue in our mission, even while we can't gather together corporately. So first, knowing God. Hopefully each day uh, we can take advantage of some time with God through our online daily devotions. We, each night we post a short Bible passage along with some guided questions that will help you meditate on Scripture and grow in your intimacy with God. Secondly, we want to continue to grow in community. And hopefully we can continue to do that by prioritizing our online Zoom community groups and by checking in with each other through social media. Now I know social media isn't for everybody, but this week we're going to have an online daily challenge, something that uh, the creative forces at King's Chapel have put together to help us sort of get outside of the rut a little bit. And it can be something that you and your kids look forward to, just an online daily challenge. So keep up with those this week, and maybe we can share comments and pictures through Facebook and hopefully have a sense of staying together even while we can't get together. And lastly, we want to continue to serve our community. And one great way that we can continue to do that is through Open Hands. Open Hands still has a need for volunteers every Tuesday and Thursday. And so we're providing an online link. If you're interested and available to help from 1.30 to 4 on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we'd love to, for you to sign up so you can get more information about what it, Open Hands is all about and how we're continuing to partner with that ministry in our community. We know that these are challenging times to stay connected. And so if you haven't done so already, we'd love for you to sign up for our weekly email uh, at kcpchurch.org or on Facebook. But mostly during this time, we hope that you'll stay connected to Jesus. It's Him who offers that fullness of life. And so let's gather together in, fam uh, in our homes and living rooms this morning and ask God to prepare our hearts for worship. Good morning, KCP. The theme of our worship this morning is God's love, God's steadfast, faithful, hesed, undeserved love. And we'll be singing about and we'll be thinking about his love. But we're going to start by calling each other to worship from Psalm 89. The text will be on your screen. You'll respond with praise the Lord at the end of these four verses from Psalm 89. Hear the word of the Lord. I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth, I will proclaim the faith, your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David, I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. And God's people said, praise the Lord. Try that again. Praise the Lord. So we have stated our desire from Psalm 89 to sing about his steadfast love. And before we can do that, we have to acknowledge that that's difficult, practically impossible, that we can't do it without the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to sing a hymn that basically says that. It says, uh, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The, the, the song basically says, unless you tune my heart to sing your grace, I'm not going to be able to do this. So 
Let's make this our prayer as we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Three, one through 13. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Think about his love and 
think about his goodness you think about his grace that's brought us through for as high as the heavens above so great is the measure of our father's love great is the
Think about His love and think about His goodness. Think about His grace that's brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. Great is the Great is the measure of our Father's love. Today's scripture passage comes from Exodus 33, 13 through 34, 10. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, King's Chapel, I trust you had a great Easter last week. Really grateful for Ben Weber and the way he led us in connecting Exodus to the resurrection. 
It's been a couple weeks since I've been with us and I've missed being able to bring um, God's word to you from Exodus. And Andy did a great job in Exodus 33 and then Ben last week in Easter. But since it has been a couple weeks, let me, let me give us some uh, review uh, to bring us back up to speed as to where we are in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the story of God saving his people out of Egypt bringing them out into the wilderness and promising to send them to the promised land. And while they're on that journey, he brings them to Mount Sinai where he enters into a covenant with them. And where we have been of the last couple of times we've been together in Exodus 32 through 34, God has made his covenant with his people. And yet there is a dilemma, a crisis that happens in the relationship between God and his covenant people. And in fact, there's a series of dilemmas that occur. Uh, Moses, Exodus 32 begins and in, introduces us to the major crisis, which is this, that while Moses is up on the mount, getting the instructions from God for the tabernacle, where God has said, I want to be in your presence, uh, the people of God uh, actually violate the very covenant that they've just entered into with God. They make for themselves a golden image of a calf. They worship that image. And they, so they violate commandments one and commandments two of God's covenant with us. And this introduces a series of dilemmas. And the first dilemma is this, is that um, because we violated that covenant so dearly, we deserve God's wrath. And God and his holy anger and justice desires to pour out that wrath on the people of Israel. But we see in Exodus 32 that Moses intercedes on the people's behalf. In fact, he even offers himself as an atonement. And God says, Moses, you can't atone for the people's sins because you also are a sinner. But he does relent and say that there will be one who, who can cover, who will mediate, who will atone for the people's sins. But this brings to the second dilemma. God says, I will relent of my wrath. But in order for me not to pour out my wrath upon you, I must remove my presence from you. We see this at the beginning of chapter 33, that God says, all right, leave Mount Sinai, move forward towards the promised land. I will continue to give you the inheritance that I've promised, but I'm not going with you. And to this, the people of God cry out to the Lord. They actually tear off so much of their, their gold and their jewelry and their repentance to the Lord. And then Moses leaves the camp for the people, goes to the Lord and prays on their behalf and intercedes again, saying, God, would you relent of this disaster? Now, this disaster of losing God's presence is a big deal in general, but specifically to what is going on in the book of Exodus at this time. You see, God, while Moses was up on the mount getting God's instructions for the tabernacle is when Israel was committing their idolatry uh, with, uh, with the idol. And essentially what this is, is would be like a married couple entering into a, they're having their wedding and going on their honeymoon and for 40 days and 40 nights, that's how long Moses was up on the mountain. And while they're there, the, the husband, the husband is planning the home that they're going to live in, the place where he can be present with his wife and she can be present with him. But while on that honeymoon, she is unfaithful to him. And so when he comes home, he says, no, I will not destroy you entirely. I will not throw you away, but I cannot live in this house with you. God, in other words, says, I'm not going to continue to tabernacle. I'm not going to make my tent and dwell in your midst. 
And so this brings up this dilemma of God's presence. The thing that we most need, the face of God that Andy dealt with a couple weeks ago, the thing that the human heart longs for the most, to be in God's presence. God is saying, in order for me to avoid pouring my wrath out upon you, I have to, I have to remove you from my presence. I will continue to give you some blessings, but I cannot be in your presence. And so, but so Moses intercedes and the people cry out. And the good news is this is that near the end of Exodus 33, God relents even of this. And he says, I will go with you. God responds to Moses' prayer and the people's prayer. It says in verse 14, and God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then in verse 17, he says, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So what we see here. And this great crisis of the relationship between Israel and God is disaster has been averted. God will relent of his wrath. He'll even give them his presence and will not pour out his wrath even while he's close to them in physical proximity, despite the fact that he will see and witness their unfaithfulness time and time again. God says, I will remain and give you my presence. But the account doesn't end there. In fact, there's a third dilemma And it's a dilemma that I think occurs in the Christian life, and we're familiar with it, which is doubt and the need for assurance. And I see this actually in two further requests, two further intercessions that Moses makes of God. First in verses 33, 18, he says, God, show me your glory. And then in 34, 9, Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. We are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Now that's interesting. That right in the connection when God has said, I'm going to give you my presence, Moses. Moses then asked for the see God's glory, to see God's presence. And then the second verse I just read there, God has just said, I'm going to go up in your midst. And then Moses says, God, go up in our midst. In other words, what I think is going on in both of these requests is this is that Moses is essentially saying to God, God, you said you wouldn't pour your wrath out on us. And in fact, you have even said that you'll give us your presence. But God, we are struggling. I am struggling to believe that. How do I know you won't remove your presence from us? How do I know when you see our sin, you won't, in your wrath and justice, won't push us away? This is a question that we often have. That in the series of our Christian life, we know in God and his character that he would be right and good to pour his wrath out on us. And at the same time, we also, we look at our life and we say, man, I am not just unfaithful once in my covenant with God. I'm unfaithful over and over and over again. And so we need assurance that in the face of our stiff-necked nature, in the face of our sin, in the face of God's wrathful character, what are we going to do? How are we going to get assurance and know that God's presence will remain with us? Well, two things I want you to see uh, this morning. That God provides for Moses to provide assurance in the way you can have assurance that you can still have God's presence with you. The first is this, is you're assured of God's presence as you experience God's character. You see, Moses in 33.18 asks to see God's glory. And while to see God's face, to see God's panim, as Andy dealt with a couple weeks ago, it is the greatest desire of Moses' heart and ought to be the greatest desire of our hearts. 
This request in this context is actually more about Moses longing for assurance. In other words, Moses is saying, God, you said you'll give us your presence. So now I need to see your presence. Moses is in effect asking for God for a demonstration of the very promise he has just made. He is asked to see the glory of God and God shows it to him, at least a glimpse of it. This is a famous account where God tells Moses, listen, if you see the the fullness of my glory, it would destroy you. So I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock and I will turn my back and you can see the shadow of my backside. But it's interesting The account of God displaying his glory to Moses doesn't end there. This is where sometimes our chapter divisions in the Bible get in the way. It actually, verse chapter 34 is a continuation of God revealing his glory to Moses. You see, it says in in the beginning of chapter 34 that God descends in a cloud. And it says the Lord passed before Moses this is God showing his, the glory of the shadow of his backside to Moses. And as he passes Moses, he declares this in verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, while what God is saying here is God gives Moses a glimpse of his glory and a sense of a physical manifestation, but primarily the way God shows Moses his glory is by describing for Moses the beauty of his character. Moses says, I want to see God. And God said, all right, come up here and I'll show you who I am. But if you really want to know me, God says, it's not primarily about seeing what I look like. It's about seeing the infinite perfections of my character. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, if a psalmist wanted to describe the beauty of God, the greatness of God, if a prophet wanted to to communicate to himself and remind himself about the beauty and the character of God and the glory of God, they would quote Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And what does that description of God say? Let's just walk through it briefly. It says that God is gracious and merciful, meaning God loves to give favor to those who have not earned his favor. And he loves to give mercy to those who instead deserve his wrath. It also says that God is slow to anger. And this is a Hebrew idiom. It's actually behind this word. It actually says, means there that it's God has a long of, is God is long of nose. In other words, did you know that God has a long nose? That is like our um, saying in our day that someone has a long fuse. They don't quickly get angry. It's eliciting the image of someone who has a big nose where there's a, a long way for the air to give up, get up. That there is a slow way in which they take in their breath. In other words, God is not impatient or wrath. Slow to anger acknowledges that the, our God is reluctant to act against his creation in a wrathful manner. 
even when in that creation is in rebellion against him. He waits a long time, giving sinners over and over opportunities to repent of their sin. And it means that when he does finally act against evil, it is in righteousness and with a deliberate manner. It is not capricious or a volatile loss of temper. Lastly, we see that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is what is referred to as God's hesed love or his loving kindness. This specifically refers to God's covenantal love. There is a general and generic way in which I guess God loves all of his creation. But there is a specific way that God loves those he's in covenant with. This is speaking of the nature of God's covenantal love, that it is loyal, it is long-suffering, it is, he is a covenant-keeping keeping God. And in particular, what it means is that when we are not steadfast, when we are not faithful, he will remain faithful. When we are fickle, though, he is still faithful to us. And out of that covenant-keeping love, that said for us, God says that he forgives sins. In other words, what that literally means, the Hebrew is that he lifts or carries our sins from us. He removes the burden of our sins and carries them away. Now, this, that's all verse 6, that description of who God is. And this is preferably where we would like to stop, isn't it? Right? Because verse 7 says some unsettling things. Verse, we like to think of the God who is compassionate and forgiving and loving, and yet God continues in his description. He concludes this, this mini-sermon of his divine attributes in verse 7 saying this, And yet God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God does not let sin go unpunished. Whether individually or corporately, he will deal with sin. And if we're honest, we don't like this. This this frustrates us. And in fact, it brings confusion as we read these two verses. Verse 6 seems to say nothing but mercy, mercy, mercy from God. And verse 7 says, God is going to be wrathful, not just to you, but to your children and your grandchildren. So which is it? Well, we must be careful if we are to understand the fullness of the glory of God, to not have a one-dimensional God. God is both merciful and he is just. He is loving and he is wrathful. And a full understanding of the true God is one who is perfectly loving and perfectly just, but it's in seeing the fullness of the glory of God's character that we can actually be assured of his presence. You see, the thing that distresses us about wondering if we're going to lose God's character is that aspect of his wrath. Will you always be merciful? We know we deserve something else. Clearly in the Bible, we have God who says he is full of mercy and we have a God who is also full of wrath. And so we wonder, how is this going to work in our life? Will at some point the wrath of God win out? Will the wrath of God win out over his mercy? Will his mercy run out for us in the midst of our covenant unfaithfulness? Well, the character of God, what we see, these things, God's mercy and justice, are not in tension. They are held perfectly God loves them both, these aspects of his character. And they, but the fallout, the tension that we feel is in the story of redemption. How will these things be reconciled in the character of God? How will we see it? Well, the way we see the God's mercy and God's justice carried out in fullness is in the New Testament in Christ Jesus. In Romans, it says this, 
that because Jesus died on the cross, God can be just. That means he has punished sin by punishing, pouring out his wrath that you deserve upon Jesus. But also, God gets to be the justifier of the ungodly. That means he gets to be merciful and declare righteous those who are not righteous. He is able to show mercy and declare sinners righteous. The crucifixion satisfies God's justice and it satisfies God's longing for mercy. He has not cleared the guilty. He has not winked at sin or shrugged his shoulders at our rebellion and our covenant unfaithfulness. But instead he has paid for it, but he paid for it himself. In the cross, justice and mercy meet. God's character fully revealed. So God says, I will give you my presence. And you say, how can I be sure? How can I be sure that your mercy will not run out? How can I be sure that your wrath may not win out over your mercy? God, you have to show me your glory. And the glory is this, is that mercy and justice reside perfectly in this being, this God. And it says in Hebrews 1 verses 3 that Jesus is the perfect example the perfect expression of the radiance of God's glory. Moses, in hearing this sermon, merely heard the words of God's character. Jesus is the fullest expression of God's character, of God's steadfast love and mercy, and also his longing to bring about justice. In other words, you need assurance, assurance that God is with you, then you look to the cross of Jesus, knowing that that is a guarantee that God's presence will never be taken away. God's glory is there for you. Well, Moses is even further assured though, and it continues on. Because Moses responds in an odd way to this display of God's glory. In verse 8, God, Moses responds first by worshiping God and his character, but then second, his response becomes strange. It says in verse 9, Moses says, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please go in the midst of us. For we are stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. In other words, despite Moses hearing of God's character of mercy and graciousness and forgiveness, Moses continues to doubt and struggle. He needs even more evidence, more proof that God will go with his people and not pour his wrath out upon them. In other words, he wants God to document his intentions. And Moses looks at in reality, and in, in a right way, he looks at the situation. He says, God, we're a stiff-necked people. We're going to fall away, not just here in Exodus 32, but over and over again. This is part of our character, that we will be unfaithful. So God, you said you will give us your presence. But remember, you threatened earlier that you would take it away. Will you take it away? I need more, more assurance so Moses actually looks at God and says, God, we need, I need more. Will you go with, with us? Will you take us as your inheritance? And what is amazing about our God and his forbearance and patience with Moses and with us is that when we doubt and he gives us assurance and then we doubt again, he continues to give us great signs of assurance. He gives Moses what he needs. He gives him a sign that he will continue to give his presence to Israel. And what does God do? Well, the context of chapter 34 
is God calling Moses up, and he gives him what looks like a reiteration of the law. In fact, actually, God reenacts the covenant he made with Moses and Israel in Exodus 19 through 24. It says in verse 10, God's response to Moses' request that he give him a sign, that he go with them, as God says this, Moses, you'll know I'll go with you because behold, in verse 10, I am making a covenant with you. You see, Moses had broken the first tablets of the law, representing the fact that the people of God had broken covenant with God. And so that covenant had to be reinstated between God and his people. And so God reassures the people by recommitting himself to them, saying, hey, let's re-covenant ourselves. You may be familiar with folks, and perhaps you've done this, if you've been married, people do it often at their 20 or 25 year wedding anniversary is they will renew their vows to one another. This happens often when there's been unfaithfulness perhaps in a marriage. And that is essentially what God is doing with Israel. Israel has been unfaithful to God. And yet God says, I want to give you assurance that I'm going nowhere, that I'm going to be faithful to my covenant with you. And so I want to bring you back to my mountain and I'm going to restate and renew our vows so that you can hear me say over you again, you are my people and I am your God. And therefore, here's what I would like to say to you. When you wonder about because of your sin and because of the wrathful character and just justice of God, will God remove his presence from you? Then in those moments, this dilemma is taken care of by remembering God's covenant with you. Now, how do you remember God's covenant to you? What might that look like in your life? Well, God in his goodness knows that we need assurance a lot. And so he's actually given us a symbol in the practice of the church that helps us. I'm going to introduce the symbol in this way. When are you most reminded of your own wedding? It's when you go to somebody else's wedding. When you and your wife, 10, 15 years into marriage, are at another wedding and you look at each other and you remember, hey, do you remember our wedding day? You remember when this happened? You remember when the ring bearer ran into ran to his mom and dad? You remember the things about the, the way you covenanted together? Well, in our Westminster Confession of Faith, our theological statement as a church, we are actually called and encouraged, the means by which we get assurance is it says there that we are to remember our baptism. Now you see, I'm going to connect baptism with a wedding because baptism is a sign of God's covenant with us. Just like a marriage, baptism is God's wedding ring upon us. See, in a ring ceremony in a wedding, a groom takes a ring and he gives it to his bride And he says, this is a symbol and a pledge of my promise, of my covenant to you. And it's a circular ring, circle representing eternity, right? My love for you is eternal. It is everlasting to everlasting. It will not end. It will be for a lifetime. And we tend to, but we we have messed this image up royally in the way we talk about rings. We tend to talk about rings as if we have put the rings on ourselves, as if, I bring baptism on myself. But have you ever been to a wedding? I do lots of weddings. Have you ever been to a wedding where a bride takes a a ring and actually puts it on her own finger and says, this reminds me to be faithful to you, groom? No, that's not what happens. No, in a ring ceremony, what a groom does is he takes that ring 
And he says, I am putting this ring on you, bride. Not so that you can remember you needing to be faithful to me, but so that whenever you see this ring, you are reminded of my covenant promise to you. That's important. He gives the ring and says, this is my pledge. And that's what baptism is for us as Christians. That God has poured His water over us as a sign, something to remind us that He has promised that He will never leave you or forsake you. That He has declared you mine. He says, I am your God and you are my child. You are my bride. And so what I would call you to do, remember His covenants. But wonder of wonders, God knowing that we need reminder after reminder, assurance after assurance, that whenever you see someone baptized, remember what God says about you. Remember his covenant faithfulness to you. Now you might look at that and say, well, what's my role then? We'll look at that next week. You see, and whenever there's a ring ceremony in a wedding, there's a response from the bride, isn't there? She gives a ring back and a promise. Our promise, our ring in Christianity is not that we take baptism upon ourselves. God pours baptism on us. Our response is faith. That is our ring that we give back to the Lord. Our obedience to Him. And we'll look at that more next week in our covenant renewal when we make a vow to the Lord that we renew our faith, repent and believe again. That's what I've called you to do today. Remember God's character perfectly displayed in Jesus of the cross. And remember God's promise to you his covenant baptism, that he has given you a physical sign and seal. Perhaps when you wash your hands today in the midst of the coronavirus for the 20th time, you can remember God has washed you clean. He has covenanted with you with water so that you will know you will never be without him. Well, with that in mind, let me bless you as you go out and continue this time of worship together with you and your family. But I leave you now, and I leave you with a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace, King's Chapel.